0: So we have been just lifted to a higher plane, no? So let us then hear from this heightened perch the words of our gospel from Mark as we encounter a Savior who himself will be lifted up. Then he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said this all quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake. with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let us pray. Dear God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations that these words elicit in our hearts give you glory and help us know a bit more about serving you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Those of you who've been with us regularly since the first of the year know that I'm spending most of my year in preaching on the Gospel of Mark. I'm already five, ser- five sermons into this year-long project. And with my most recent sermon of February 5th, we have now completed the first chapter. For the remainder of Lent and Easter, though, we're going to follow the Gospel of John. But then on June 2nd, we'll return to Mark for the balance of the year. Today's story breaks the pattern that we've seen so far in Mark of going from episode to episode, from event to event. Today's passage comes from nearly the exact halfway point in the gospel, chapter 8, where it seems as if to drop out of the blue into the disciples' understanding of Jesus with an alarming announcement. Using the only title by which Jesus refers to himself, the Son of Man, Jesus says to his 12 disciples, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and then after three days, rise again. Now, it is hard for us to hear these words with the same sense of alarm with which the disciples hear them. Most of us in this sanctuary already know the end of the story. We know that at the end of each gospel, Jesus is, in fact, put to death by crucifixion on a cross. And then he is raised from the dead in victory three days later. Thus, we not only hear this dire prediction by Jesus of his own death, as something that we already know, but we know that the resurrection lies just around the corner. So, this prediction of his passion does not startle us like it startles the disciples. You see, to this group of 12 who have left fishing boats, tax collecting, and family to join the small religious movement that this Jewish carpenter named Jesus has initiated in the rural areas and in the villages of Galilee, Everything that they have seen Jesus do so far, while somewhat puzzling, has been an act of power. It has confirmed their decision to follow him. He has walked on water. He has healed a leper. He has exercised psychological or spiritual maladies that have seized a man in the synagogue with symptoms that are so intense They have no other language with which to describe them other than to say the man is possessed of demons. And the disciples have seen Jesus amaze religious people, religious leaders who are older, wiser, and more educated than he is, amaze them with the power of his teaching, leading these leaders to admire Jesus to feel threatened or both. While the disciples generally know that even as Jesus claims to be God, particularly in his use of the Son of Man, he is somehow different from the pagan gods of the Roman Empire under whose authority the disciples live as a subjugated people. <clears throat> if we study these Greek and Roman gods in a Greek, in a, these Roman gods in a Greek, Roman mythology course in college, or even if we read Paul's sermon in Athens in Acts, we may remember that these gods are worshipped by the majority of the people in whose midst the early disciples live. These Roman gods rule by the sheer, brute, physical strength that we often associate with warrior males, the strength of sword and club, of fist and forearm, of muscled torso and swift legs. The British classicist Tom Holland has written, command and swagger were the very essence of the cult of the Caesars. To rule as an emperor, was to rule as a victorious general. To rank as the son of a God was to embody earthly greatness and earthly power. But unlike these gods of brute-like power, this Jesus, this man for whom they have left fishing boats and tax booths to follow lo, these several months, this Jesus harkens back to a different vision of of divinity, one found in the book of Daniel, and says in effect to his disciples, in my nature of being God, in my nature of being God's divine son, I come to you as one who is like a human being. In my very identity as God in your midst, I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must be killed. And after three days, I must and will rise from the grave. Now, it is doubtless the case that because the Jewish people, the people into whom Jesus was born, are a captive minority within the Roman Empire. Whether they are living under a local official who has sort of a live and let live attitude or one who prefers intense surveillance and subsequent persecution, it is natural that when these Jewish people hope for a Messiah, they hope for a divine figure who will liberate them from Roman rule. Just as God has freed their ancestors from slavery over a thousand years earlier, and that this divine Savior will even restore them to the scope of rule and power that was accomplished by King David several hundred years earlier and carried on by his son Solomon. When they sense that this Jesus whom they follow is somehow different, they cannot but help under duress to fall back on their familiar desire for a God of strength. For a Messiah who will restore them to earthly power, if not indeed to dominance, to dominance of the world around them. Of course they want a God of strength. Now I've said all along in this series that Mark is a very skilled writer. He is to the point. He wastes no time nor words. True to his character, Mark wastes no time in telling us that Jesus makes the prediction of his suffering and death quite openly. There are no symbolic gestures, no parables, no metaphors, no poetry. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed. As soon as these words leave Jesus' lips, Peter, who is the ever-present leader and spokesperson for the disciples, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Now, rebuke is a stern, loud, uncompromising word in Greek, especially in Mark's Gospel. It is the word that Jesus had used in the first chapter... In order to draw the unclean spirit out of the man in the synagogue, Peter, who knows that he is speaking for the other 11, wastes no time in saying to Jesus that suffering and rejection and death are precisely not the fate of their Messiah, of their Son of Man. It doesn't fit. And Jesus wastes no time in responding, looking at both Peter and the other 11 disciples. Jesus rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he says. For you are setting your mind on, div- on earthly things, on human things. Not on the divine things of who I am. This is a veritable shouting match between Jesus and Peter. Without any refs to intervene, no technical fouls are given. Nobody's ejected from the game. Nobody storms the court in victory, wounding other players. As the other disciples witness this shouting match, they look at their own feet And their stomachs tighten. Now notice that when Jesus answers Peter. He answers him out of the very core of his identity. As divine son of man. You are setting your mind not on divine things. But on human things. As much as Jesus understands and sympathizes with the disciples' desire to find relief from suffering inflicted by sword and club, Jesus himself promises, brings, embodies a different kind of strength. Jesus then calls the crowd to join his disciples, and he then addresses them all. If any want to become my followers, he says, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. When Jesus mentions the cross, he is inserting into this riveting moment the intensity and depth that his suffering will face. The cross, says Tom Holland, is an ancient Instrument of torture. It is reserved for the most despicable criminals who are executed in lengthy, multi day, torturous public deaths, often in the town square, deaths that are well beyond cruel and unusual punishment. Holland continues. It takes tremendous audacity for Jesus to point to a twisted and defeated corpse on an instrument of execution for the lowest criminals and then to find there the glory of the creator of the universe. It sounds crazy, macabre, deadly. Jesus then concludes this teaching moment, one that is so important that Mark will show him repeating it in the next chapter and then in the next chapter. Jesus explains how his disciples incorporate this cross, this different kind of strength, in their following of Jesus. For those who want to save their life will lose it, he says. And those who want to lose their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, the sake of the message, the sake of the good news, will, in fact, save it. For what does it profit us, he said, to gain the whole world if we forfeit our lives in the process? This is a call to a different kind of strength. Than what we normally associate with the word. Again, Holland, to believe that God had become man and suffered the death of a slave was to believe that there might be strength in weakness, that there might be victory in defeat, as ironic and counterintuitive as that seems. Many of you know me well enough to know that in this fallen and violent world, in this land of woe through which we wander, I am a firm believer in the tragic need for the use of force, in self-defense, in situations of family violence. In situations in which the safety in streets and cities is under threat. In situations where nations large or small are, are attacked. And in situations where genocide is being carried out. When such force has to be used in this fallen world, it has to be measured Proportional, limited to the immediate purposes of restoring peace and justice if possible. And it has to be a measure of protection to people and nations, especially to those who are innocent. This kind of governance is ordained by God as scripture attests In several places. But such force. Is always. A tragic necessity. In a fallen and violent world. It is a provisional step. Until that day. When the reign and rule of Christ. Shall be fully realized. The day of resurrection. The day of the Lord. The day of Christ's glorious. And promised return. And while such force. Is ordained by God, it is never to be celebrated as an end in itself. But short of these situations of violence, the strength to which we are called to show as Christians is the strength of the cross, it is the strength of diplomacy. It is the strength of care. It is the strength of patience. It is the strength of compassion. It is the strength of thoughtfulness. It is the strength of understanding. It is the strength of reaching out to people and drawing them in. Jesus describes this strength as the turning of the other cheek as the going of the second mile, as providing the cloak as well as the coat. This kind of strength is the kind that the sheer strangeness of Christianity brings to the world in the person of the Son of Man who embodied such strength and who commends it to us who dare to call ourselves Christians this is the deepest reality this kind of strength is the deepest reality of what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus to those of you who have professed your faith today to those of you who've been baptized into your faith or reaffirmed your faith or reconnected with the church today, and to those of us who are here every week trying to sort it out, trying to do our best, welcome to this special and unique kind of strength. Amen.